Cora Linda here, and welcome back to my podcast, Filmmaking, Actually. This is part two, so if you haven't heard part one, you probably want to go back about one episode and make sure you catch the first half of this. But my husband, Spacey, was honored to host a workshop for the Organization of Independent Filmmakers titled How to Not Have to Fix It in Post. In the second half of the workshop, Spacey continues discussing how to utilize the perspective of an editor to prevent this world that we live in of fix it in post. He goes over more of the details on how hands-on experience in editing can help you across all aspects of filmmaking and help production save time, money, and headaches. So enjoy. Uh, I just want to give some quick tips for pre-production and production from an editor's perspective. So this is all an editor's perspective, my perspective. The cinematographer and the editor, traditionally they work in separate phases, but they should collaborate early. Now the director should be involved as well. So that's important as also, but you would think that those two roles specifically of DP, you know, shooting and the editor taking that footage that he shot, turning it into the movie that they don't, because they don't overlap, that they would never work together, but they should collaborate. You know, you should bring them together during pre-production. So uh, planning the shots, you know, the editor can participate in developing, developing the shot list because all that does is give them an even more clear understanding of what to expect upon delivery of the footage. All it does is help make their job easier, make the, make the production process easier. Um, correcting problems in advance. Um, will the footage you're going to shoot actually cut together well? Because a lot is riding on that. <laughs> you know, consistent performance from the actors, continuity of props, uh, costume, hair, and makeup, actor placement. Uh, the DP needs to worry about camera placement and gathering appropriate footage that the editor can and will use. So um, there's the 180 degree rule, shot, reverse shot. You know, if, if, if you don't do it right, it makes the editing job very difficult. Um, and the DP and, you know, camera ops, they should be aware of this. Um, and yet mistakes happen that require the editors to fix it in post. Um, but I think with the editor's input in pre-production shots, at least can be planned, you know, to attempt to avoid those kind of situations. So um, I want to get into some uh, specific fix it in post problems. I think we all can maybe relate to or understand. Um, unwanted items in your shots. You've probably heard about the infamous uh, Starbucks cup that made its way onto the set and into the shot and, and into the broadcast episode of Game of Thrones. You, you guys remember that? You know, that that's, it just, it made it all the way through and nobody caught it. Uh, Jeans guy, well, somebody caught it. Jeans guy from season two of, of The Mandalorian. Eventually both the cup and the jeans guy were rotoscoped out of the shot, but it took time and money and effort to fix it. Um, HBO and Disney can afford to do that, but the question is, can you? If the answer is no, then don't put your film in a position where the fix in post is hours and hours of VFX work. So the best way to avoid that particular issue is having crew members like assistant director, script supervisor. I've worked as a script supervisor and um, it's, it's, it's great to be able to have that interconnectivity. They can talk to all departments, they can help. And all you're doing is you're representing the writer if they're not on set and you're helping the editor who might not be on set. So you're kind of a glue in a way. So it's, uh, it's having dedicated crew members who can ensure that everything that's supposed to be in the shot is and things that are not supposed to be in the shot are not. 
um, and play back your shots to make sure that all is well, all is it's the way it's su supposed to be. And if, if, you, if you can redo it, just redo it. If you know there's a mistake and you can redo it just while you're on set, just, just redo it. That's, that's all I have to say. Audio, that sucks. Um, fixing audio is a lot harder, which might sound crazy, right? Than dealing with bad video. Um, and that's saying something after the Starbucks cup and jeans guy. At least if you have a bad shot, if the camera jiggles or if the, you know, the boom mic drops in frame, all you gotta do is crop in or put some B-roll over top and you can cover it up, right? But audio that is clipped and distorted because it was recorded too loud or actors are too far away from the mic. Maybe you use the onboard mic on your camera. You really shouldn't do that. You should have you know, dedicated mics. But when you turn up the volume to try and hear the actors, all you're hearing is like room tone and noise, basically. Um, or when you don't hold for, hold for plane, you know, hold for plane. You ever done that? You know, because because there's no way to remove unwanted sound without also removing the part of the sound that you do want. So make sure your audio is good. That's my editor's perspective on sound. I guess I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm have a thing for sound, you know, music and all that stuff. I love sound. Um, white balance and exposure that sucks, you know, for your, for your editor's sanity's sake, always set your white balance and exposure correctly for each scene. Blowing out your highlights means you don't have any detail in the light of your shots. And a shot that's too dark can cause a lot of visual noise. The newer cameras nowadays work a lot better in, in low light, which is great, but you still, if there's no information in the shot, there's literally nothing to fix. So make sure that your shots are lit properly. Out of focus shots that suck. Um, that's really something you can't fix in post. You kind of have to own it, you know. Uh, there are tools built into cameras today that can help you with this, focus peaking. You can attach monitors with large screens onto the camera, or you can have a remote monitor so that you can see if it's in focus. But if it's out of focus, then what can you do, right? You, you Sometimes you have to use it. So now this is where I'm gonna do a bit of devil's advocating, you know, not to foster debate, but to illustrate something that I think is a key part of the editor's perspective, the filmmaking perspective, and that is, big picture thinking. Because um, sometimes you're just going to use that blurry shot because it's the best shot you got and it might not be technically perfect. Um, do, you, do you guys remember in The Dark Knight, uh, the bank heist scene where you're introduced to Heath Ledger as the Joker? It's iconic. It's amazing. They were using IMAX cameras for the first time, Christopher Nolan and the team. And uh, there was a mistake that was done during shooting of, of a close-up of, of Heath Ledger and he was out of focus. So Christopher Nolan's like, we have to reshoot it. We have to reshoot it. Um, and since this was this was the first time that uh, Heath Ledger had shown anyone the voice, the character, he he was worried that the reshoots were his fault, or that maybe Nolan didn't like the way he was presenting the character. You know, it's a very it, it it's that's something that you need to keep in mind is that your actors have feelings. They're in this raw state creating a character, portraying a character. So, you know, Christopher Nolan assured him that the character was perfect and it was just a technical thing because if the performance is good, praise them, you know, let them know that it's why you need to reshoot it. Um, but ultimately the, the original blurred shot, Nolan grew to love that performance and that shot so much. It's that's what's in the final film. So I'm not sure how much influence the editor had on that front particularly, but 
it's clearly a great editorial choice because the big picture means you're choosing which shots work in a way that's more than just placing technically perfect cinematography in the right order because you know that works for demo reels to show how good you are but it doesn't really work for for movies as a whole so it's all about zooming in on a micro level and making sure that the little parts work that's part of editing the details but also you got to zoom out you got to get a macro view you got to see what the film as a whole what's good for the for that and sometimes it's about leaving in little flaws and embracing the flaws if i were to counter the fix it and post mentality it would be in two ways um because art is subjective right one is if it ain't broke don't fix it Sometimes there's happy accidents. Sometimes there's little imperfections. There's something, some little weird thing in the script that is kind of odd, but you just it just stays there because it feels right. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Punch Drunk Love, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It has Adam Sandler. Uh, there's a scene where someone's asking how how his business is doing, and he says, uh, "Oh, business is very very food, you know." And and they're like, and his sister comes up like, "What do you what did you say? Uh, business is very." No, you said business is very food. No, I meant uh, business is very good, you know. And uh, it's it was a vestige of a early draft where there was a typo. And during the development process, they were like, the director chose to keep it because it was kind of funny. It made it, it's like, oh, I typed, you know, it was a typo. Business is food. So that's the idea of like, there's unexpected things that you need to embrace and make intentional. You know, that's fine. That's totally fine. The other... Um, counter to fix it and post is, uh, it was really clever. I read this just uh, the other day, fix it in pre, right? So, you know, be aware of all potential problems, plan accordingly. You know, if you know that a plane, planes are flying overhead, you're going to have to account for that or work within those issues. Um, hire the best people possible for the job. Use the best equipment that you can, that you know, that you can afford with your budget. Um, plan and rehearse scenes so that come production day, the chances for errors are minimized. You know, cast actors who can memorize uh, their lines, can hit their marks, keep continuity. This is super, super important. Um, and uh, work with competent uh, producers or production teams, you know, with experience in the kind of shoot that you're uh, undertaking. So, but now it's time, I think, to attack all of those positions that I just uh, established because um, at the end of the day, life is such that you can't plan for everything. The clock is ticking. It's either now or never. You have to make a choice. So I think that the best way to prepare for things is to draw from personal experience. That's just my point of view. You know, you can listen to this and I can tell you things and you might agree with them. You might disagree with them, but the only way you're going to know is if you try them for yourself and then if they work, you keep doing them. And if they don't, you stop doing them. So, because uh, I know you've probably worked on a project before where a fix it and post situation has occurred, you know? Sometimes it's something good. Sometimes it's something awful. So what you do is you plan for the next time, right? You hope to prevent or at least significantly reduce the chance of it happening again. Um, but even the best laid plans, you know, can go awry. So when that happens, it's about knowing how to make the best decision um, in real time, you know, as to whether or not to fix it in post or move on. So um, I figured I'd just talk about a very specific experience that I've had. Uh, maybe it'll, you know, give you some insight. I don't know. We'll see. Um, 
one of the greatest challenges, but it was also fun, but it was just kind of like something that you had to, something that we had to take care of was uh, my wife's film Names on the Wall. And I think working on that film only served to improve my abilities as an editor. You know, um, I was privileged to be on set while the film was being made, you know, got to hang out with the actors and the crew and be with my wife, the director, of course, you know, that was all, it was wonderful. I was so happy to be there. And um, when it came time to put it all together, I never knew that I would be the editor or, you know, a co-editor as Core worked on it as well. She was crucial. You know, her editing work, work was necessary. And, 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 and specifically there was a, there was a time where we got together with Nick Gambino, who's the writer on the film. And it was in um, his office in, in Virginia and we're there and there's a big piece of plywood on the wall. Right. And it's got post-it notes that are all different colors and they all go to different parts of the story as it was scripted and shot. They, decided, you know what, this needs to be restructured, it needs to be rearranged. And I just remember that it was really cool to see that they could like move some things around. And, and um, yeah, so the, the editing process became structuring the movie different from the way it was scripted and shot. And it, what's funny is that it, it wasn't, it's not as if the film was even broken to begin with, it didn't necessarily need to be fixed. But I think if the film had not gone through that process, if I had not gone through that process of having to learn how to really edit on that level, I think that we would have ended up with a more traditional, straightforward, maybe less powerful film. I'm sure Names on the Wall still would have been special, but I have no doubt that the overflowing levels of emotion and response to what it ended up being are because of the work, right? That was done by Cora and Nick, and I guess I helped a little bit as well. But it was a real privilege to be able to help bring that vision to life. I'm saying how not to have to fix it in post, and yet uh, fixing it in post uh, made me a better editor. So, um, And so many times in f film history itself, it's creative solutions that have resulted in dramatically improved end results. Not just film history, just in life in general, you know? So my hope is that you will be able to make better creative solutions early and often in the work that you do so that you're not saddled with spending extra money, spending extra time, all the headaches that come with fixing and posts. But I, I just hope that when it's all said and done, that you can take these tips and tricks and, you know, my opinions and go out and make even more awesome films. So that's it. That's about all I have. Um, Thank you so much. Um, and if, if anybody has any questions. I'm just going to jump in and say this was great. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Um, thank you. The two things that I was a good reminder for everybody, I think, um, is that it's all about the experience at the end of the day. People are so co-opted with technicality, but at the end of the day is how you uh, transmit the feeling and the experience of the whole movie. And that's really tied into um, the show, Don't Tell. Um, so bring the, the audience to be engaged and be part of the movie, part of the experience. Um, so that was the number one, I think, take um, a reminder, a good reminder for me. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, of mm -hmm. course. Um, it's interesting because I think there is this impression that people need to be fully formed and amazing straight out the gate when it comes to anything. I think it's kind of this impression we get when people are talented 
that we don't see what goes on that forms the talent. You know, we just think, oh, they just were born that way and they just did it that way. And they, and I, I want to do that, you know, but it is about going through the experience. And then when you come out on the other side, you have an ability that's something you've never, you know, never done it before. And then you do it and now you can say you've done it. You know, that's uh, very valuable, but I think it's, I think oftentimes people get discouraged because they don't know everything or they, they try something and they fail. And yet I think that's part of life is you try, you fail and you try again. And, you know, it's about having, cutting yourself some slack along the way. If you're the type of person that is prone to self uh, crippling self-doubt like I am. So it's about the journey (laughs) and what you get from it. So, Mm -hmm. yes. You learn from every mistake. Sometimes you lo- learning what not to do is as much as important than knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I agree. Um, hey, Spaceship, there are two questions. If you can go into the chat and see for everyone, it's not let me uh, copy paste for some reason. Okay. It keeps coming up as uh, Cora's things from last time. Okay. So one was Cora and one is uh, from Tanya, I believe. Okay. Question was... Um, what was the most challenging things you had to fix in post? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I can talk about names on the wall specifically. I think my wife will, will allow me to discuss that. Um, we, on a technical level, that was a film where it was shot on a uh, Canon 5D, I believe. So, you know, it, the, the picture is great. And what's interesting is that the frame rate, this is a technical thing too, but this is something that it's good to have in mind is um, when you're shooting action, oftentimes you'll see in, if you're watching say Loki, right? Or Falcon and the Winter, Winter Soldier, um, you'll notice there's a certain kinetic energy from action scenes. And it's because the frame rate changes. It goes from what might be typical for a cinematic film. Uh, usually the frame rate is approximately 24 frames a second. Um, or even the shutter shutter speed, you know, that'll change as well. Uh, Cause usually there's a rule where if you're at 24 frames a second, you adjust your shutter speed to you know, 1 50th or something like that. And, you know, it's approximately double. So that gives you a sort of filmic quality. Uh, but to make a long story short for names on the wall, it was all shot at 24 frames a second, even action scenes. And so the idea is that if you want to be able to play with time, slow things down. So, you know, action blurs, right? And so if you can clearly see if you slow down footage and it's, you know, it's not blurring, then for um, an action scene, you want to be able to have articulating of action. And so a lot of the action would get blurred and things like that. And so playing with time was difficult because I had to use a plugin called Twixter. And so what it can do, it can allow you to take footage that you cannot slow down and sort of manipulating uh, the software to slow it down artificially. So it, it creates a certain effect, but you know, if I were to go back in time and say, hey, we should probably do different frame rates and different shutter speeds and things like that. I might've done that, but at the same time, we still wouldn't have the film that we have now. So I don't regret that. So probably just because I, as, I came on late as an editor, so I wasn't able to communicate with the DP in real time. I just, it just wasn't doable. It kind of was one of those situations where at that point you have to try and fix it. Also, we adjusted the framing. So you notice, I don't know if you can tell here, but this is kind of a 16 by nine frame where it's kind of long ways and you know cut off right here. And that's how it was filmed. And so to have more control over composition of shots, we altered the, 
this is this is common too. This happens in a lot of movies, uh, mainstream movies, where they'll alter it to be a lot more, you know, less headroom, you know. So you have a lot more latitude to compose the shot. You can slide your frame up and down, uh, compose shots exactly the way you want them in post. So even if for some reason it looks good on set, you know, if you want to try things differently, that's one thing you can do is zoom in, crop, and do different things. So changing the changing the aspect ratio. That was a kind of a fun discovery because we were able to like, oh, we can actually use this shot that we couldn't use before because there was, you know, the boom was in the frame. You know, things, it happens. I think that's just a long way of saying there's there's lots of things. I could go on and on. I could talk at length about any number of things that is the most difficult. There's always a new most difficult, but that's that's one. Okay, and Quarry had asked about, uh, what about using rhythm as a method of cutting? Sure. Um, it's highly individual for me. It probably comes from my background in music, I would say. The trick is discovering the rhythm of a scene. If you are the type of filmmaker who, say you're an Edgar Wright, and you're kind of making sequences or scenes where it has to fit to very specific pieces of music, right? It has to fit. Then your editing is kind of not as free. But at the same time, you're probably also, if you're an editor, right, you're probably very involved in the editing process in terms of directing the editing and directing the DP exactly how you want things to line up. So in that sense, it's not about discovering rhythm so much as establishing a rhythm just from, from the development stage. Like you're, that's, that's an interesting thing to me. Um, in terms of discovering rhythm where it's not really there and you're having to establish it, it just depends on, um, you know, what you're trying to convey because sometimes it's about extending out, say you're shooting a, you know, rever shot, reverse shot of a conversation and you need to establish more breath because a lot of editors now, like, you know, new editors will cut in such a way where there's YouTube videos, they try and cut out all the pauses, all the ums, all the all the space. And I think in film, I think you need to be able to embrace space, you know, give people time to react. And so I think rhythm um, is, it's, it's kind of, sometimes rhythm is allowing things to play out a little bit longer than you think they might sh sh normally would, you know, sometimes it's because you don't necessarily have music to guide you. Now there is this thing called temp love where people put temp tracks in and they're like, oh, I just love this. And they cut to that and they can suffocate their scene. You know, they can suffocate the actors by not giving them the space to react. So I think rhythm is, it's highly individual to a scene, you know, to a, to an entire movie. It depends. And it depends on genre as well. Cause if you have action movies, then obviously the rhythm of an action movie is going to be different from the rhythm of a period piece, sort of like a Downton Abbey where it's about, languid shots and letting ha people have free-flowing conversation sometimes it's your what you're working with that can dictate the rhythm if you have shots that maybe aren't working together and you just you're kind of trying to cut out the bad parts and that kind of can dictate your rhythm too but it should be motivated by the scene itself what's right in front of you that should probably be the best indicator of how to cut and when to cut and then uh, the idea of taking a rest coming back to it, you might be like, you know what? I don't like the rhythm of the scene. I want to like move this around a little bit. And so rhythm is kind of like, it's very subjective. It's very personal. I think it's a very personal reaction uh, to things. 
I had a question. Um, I don't know if it's more of a statement, but it's I, it's a question to you as a as a as a seasoned editor. How do you coordinate with a director who's maybe unwilling to allow you the space to be the editor of the footage? Like maybe a, working with an editor who has a very very strict idea of what they want and is unwilling to work with you so much. So you're saying working with a director who has a very specific vision for how they want to cut uh, a thing. Yeah, something like that. Just just how do you approach uh, maybe a director who doesn't like your edit and then gives you like six pages of this is how I want it done? Um, obviously, it's I think it's all about nurturing the relationship with a director. You know, if they have a very specific vision, if they if they want it cut a certain way, that's it's understandable, but maybe what you should, obviously, I think the question is specific to, they uh, haven't brought you as an editor early on into the process to really work together, like early on. It's more of a reactive thing where they've, maybe it's been developed, you know, and shot, and now it's at the point where they might be meeting their editor and trying to push a certain view onto the editor, and that's that's very common. It's, but it, to to answer it, I guess I guess I would say, the editor is in service of the director. So what has to happen is that you need to try and ingratiate yourself. You need to, as an editor, as early as possible, get an idea of what kinds of, what's their cinematic language. You try and like build that dynamic where they feel comfortable being with you. Or if obviously they're working remote, it's, it might be more like a Zoom call or something. Ideally, it's you, the, the, editor should be somebody that the director wants to spend time with. And that process of like getting copious notes is, can be, can be disheartening, especially if you put a lot of time and effort and you have very strong feelings about why it needs to be cut this way. But I think like I detailed, it, it should be, as long as it's about the work, you should be able to have a spirited discussion. You should be able to freely talk about why it is that you feel it's important to cut it a certain way. Your director needs to be able to articulate why they feel the way that they do. And at the end of the day, it's the director who calls the shots. So really, I think it's kind of a lesson in communication. Communication is a two-way street. You need to be able to receive from the director what it is that they're trying to achieve, what they want. And ultimately, sometimes it's, you know, I was reading about the writing process for, this is might be controversial. I enjoyed the movie tremendously. Um, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. The writing process, you know, that talk about a film where they were they lost six months of production time. Uh, so for that alone, the fact that they made a movie, they made a movie. That's it's incredible that they actually made a movie. Um, but uh, specifically, the writing process was, you know, Chris Terrio, J.J. Abrams. And they had strong ideas about what they thought should be in this movie. And they wouldn't shout each other down, but it got to a point where once they found something they could agree on, they would just grab onto that and go with that. And I think that's probably the thing that will preserve your sanity is to find where you do agree on, really hone in on that. And then everything should just grow from those points, you know, the points of commonality where the Venn diagram overlap, where you you agree on something. So anything that you don't agree on, just find those fixed points, those anchor points of what you do agree on. And yeah, like pick, it's, it's picking your battles. So. Okay. Uh, thank you. And uh, Tria had a question about what uh, editing software do you use and 
to follow up on that, what is your favorite plugin, if any? Um, we we use Premiere. We use um, uh, Premiere and you know After Effects and things like that. Um, my favorite plugin. I don't know. I don't. Oh, I have. Ooh, this is tough. This is tough. Um, I'm gonna do a little cheat because it's not necessarily a plugin, but it's um, it's this new um, AI software that I've found that I've I've been using in a a uh, couple of projects that it, it's kind of blowing my mind what it can do for editors. Uh, and it's called EB Synth. So EB Synth, you can take a keyframe, right? I was have a given shot and you can tweak this frame however you want. If you want to like really like improve some quality, well improve. If you want to change the way someone's face looks, for example, um, you can keyframe one frame, right? And then this um, this software, you plug in the one frame, you put in your parameters, and it will generate on its own. It will um, use artificial intelligence to take the one keyframe as a reference and apply it to all the frames. So you can do facial replacement. You can replace. You can make you know use some type of age filter on a person's face, or make them look younger, or add makeup, or brighten their eyes. Do anything you want, and and it will take that effect for one frame, right? Sort of a Photoshop effect and apply it to a series of frames. Now it's a little bit buggy, um, but the beta version that just came out is really, really, uh, it's it's made some improvements and um, you can do it, you can apply it, it in a lot of ways. You don't have, you, it, you, there's animation, you can do rotoscoped animation, you can do all sorts of things. There's, there's a YouTuber um, who goes by, uh, well, he goes by because it's his name, uh, Joel Haver. Uh, he great. He creates these really interesting uh, rotoscoped animated videos, and he's got like a million subscribers. And these videos are they're improv, right? But they use you know animation to kind of create whatever world they want. So the possibilities for editors nowadays to to manipulate footage, the possibilities are becoming more and more endless. What you can do to uh, uh, change the look of your your movie, your film, anything that you're working on. You can dabble in all sorts of, so that's the big one. It's called EB Synth and it's completely free and you can download it and yeah, you. I would love to, you can go on YouTube and there's all sorts of things where people are trying EB Synth with things. And, can yeah. you spell it out? Uh, EB Synth, E-B-S-Y-N-T-H. So it's all one word. Great, thank you. And uh, we have another question from Jay. <clears throat> it's a bit of a broad question. How should one break into the film industry without going to film school? And can doing PA work or other entry-level jobs help? I want to work in post-production as VFX artist, sound designer, screenwriter, and possibly video editor. That is broad. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, let, me, let me, I think I know who can answer this question. Cor? I think my wife can answer this question a lot better than I can. I'll start off though. If you really want to gain experience in film, you don't have to go to film school. That, that I never went. I'm completely self-taught. Um, and if you look at people in the industry, there are plenty of people who didn't go to film school. There, you know, Taika Waititi, the director of uh, What We Do in the Shadows, and Thor Ragnarok, and the upcoming Thor sequel. He and Jojo Rabbit. He didn't go to film school. Um, he told us this himself. We were at Sundance and. My wife went up to him and she's like, I was just like, I never, you know, I just feel like, how, how do I compete? I never went to film school. And he's like, I didn't go to film school, you know? So that's, it's interesting when 
because film school can provide you know great contacts and there are benefits i'm sure i've just never i've never been so i think it kind of comes down to being willing to volunteer your services i'm waiting for cora to come here cora you want to come here okay sorry for yelling but uh I'm just making sure that someone competent can answer the oh look who it is. I think I think my wife can answer this question a lot better than I can. Here she is. Um, Do you want to switch seats or no, you good? We'll oh, okay. Oh, I see. Um, so I would say that um the best way to uh break into film is to just work on <laughs> uh anything. Just start, just start um doing stuff, show up, help. Um, don't like give away the milk for free as it may be, but um, definitely like find people who are actually like doing real projects that you can be a part of and just get a couple onto your resume and then start working on actual paid projects. And um, I actually have, did we release the PA already? I don't think podcast? we have. I don't okay. think we have. Um, we have a podcast. We have a podcast. <laughs> called she has a podcast. It's called Filmmaking Actually, and it um, there is an episode coming up, uh, if we haven't released it yet, um, that goes over how to like be a PA, actually, how to, how to rise through the ranks by starting and how to actually effectively navigate that and not end up in this spinning wheel of working for free as a PA for the rest of your life, because that's not productive. I worked um, as a PA for my first film, film set experience on okay. Names on the Wall, which you can watch <laughs> right now. On Amazon, you can go to Amazon Prime Video. You can type in names on the wall and uh, she directed it. Okay, this is your class. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say I didn't, um, I don't remember the things that uh, were listed out, but um, another thing is just to start doing stuff. There's, especially if you're looking for post work, um, there's a really great website called hitrecord.org and you can, um, there's a bunch of projects and collaborations happening there. You can, download stuff to edit to like just get stuff to play around with and it's a very welcoming community so it's not like you're going to put it up and you're going to get a bunch of trolls telling you you suck um you'll uh it, it's a really cool place to kind of try stuff out try new programs try um things that oh thanks megan <laughs> um and thank you tanya um anyway i won't take over but that is my answer to the question and i'm sure you can answer it as well as i can that was the answer to the question. I have no more to say. I really, I, I, I hope, I wish, I wish you all, <laughs> I, I wish you all the best. Obviously, putting yourself out there is difficult when you do lack experience, but it's kind of uh, the only way to gain experience sometimes is to get out and do things. So whether that's working on your own project, you know, if you want to, sometimes you might, it, sometimes it comes down to taking what resources you have and trying to write, edit, shoot and not in that order right shoot edit put together and show it you know put it out there um but if you in a professional capacity you know you you kind of do have to just do the work of reaching out to people and seeing if maybe it's people in your community or you know um facebook is a good way we found a lot we found a lot of collaborators and opportunities on facebook of all places um there uh yeah so that's a that's about all i have to say about that I sound like Forrest Gump right there. So are there any other questions? I feel like I feel like this is this is kind of fun. I wonder if there's like, you know, do I have any hidden talents or something at this point? <laughs> I, I'd like to keep it on topic, but um, I do see a question on the side, so I will read it. Um, it is from Tanya. 
it says, would working on your own projects also help with learning? Like just experimenting with your iPhone even. Um, yeah, totally. Obviously, okay, I'll put it this way. There's two ways, there's two sides to it. Obviously doing everything yourself, right? Where it's to your own standard and you, you know, it looks good to you, looks good from your house, right? Writing, shooting, editing, putting something together that you shoot. Um, and then who do you show it to? It's kind of like what Core was saying. Like if you put something out there and then the wrong people see it, right? You don't get, you either get the family, friends and family who are like, that was great. You're great. You did good. You're doing, you're wonderful. I want to make you feel good about yourself. And then there, you, if you put it on YouTube and kind of expose yourself to commenters who really don't care about your feelings, to be honest, you know? Um, so there's two sides of it, but then also in terms of what you make yourself and then there's in a professional capacity. And I think it is really about holding yourself to a high standard, like the things that you watch, if it inspires you, try to aspire to that level. Or if it's something that's very low-fi and low-budget, zero-budget, just if, if that's the aesthetic that you like, lean into it. Because um, there, the series, The Guild, when it started out, it was just people doing what we're doing or what I'm doing, you know, talking into a webcam. And that was the whole show. And it's a fantastic, it started out as a web series. It's on, I think it's still on Netflix, right? So it's fantastic how something lo-fi, something as simple as just using your webcam, um, there's an entire movie called Searching uh, that uses the screen. It's all screen-based, and it's a it's a major movie that you can you you can get uh, at uh, Redbox and on Amazon. So it's really it's interesting that you can take any kind of approach that might seem like, well, I don't have any money, I don't have it. Yeah, work on your own projects, and you never know what might happen with with them. Uh, you just keep improving, keep getting better and hold yourself to a higher standard. You know, that's, that's the main thing I think, and have fun, have fun, but always, I think with the idea of growing and trying new things. So. Um, oh, hi, sorry. I have one quick question. If you have time, um, uh, I, I usually work in documentary film and I was interested in screenwriting and editing. So I attended this, but I was wondering, this is like a really big question. So you can answer as you will, but Okay, what perfect. sort of like aspects of storytelling and fiction would you sort of want to see in documentary or nonfiction? I, I, that's kind of vague because I'm trying to make some videos right now about like some families who work in a restaurant. Um, I'm just going to put it on YouTube, but I'm starting to interview them. So it's like kind of nerve wracking because I don't really know how to ask these questions. And it's like my mind is just like filled with thoughts of like, oh, how am I going to tell their story the right way? Or like what kind of story am I seeing? from what they're saying in the interview, blah, blah, blah. But I was just wondering what kind of aspects would you want to see in documentary or vice versa? Okay, so so just to duplicate, you are making documentaries yourself. You want to tell stories through documentary, but you also want to tell stories through um, narrative, like screenwriting? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to, I mostly worked as a PA and an associate producer in documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and then now I'm dabbling in like screenwriting, um, just because I was like, oh, like fiction, like scripted is also really, really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that with um, just my own experience. I don't know how much time we have. Just I'll try and make it quick. Um, my background really is in documentary. That's really my initial passion. I love, I've watched so many documentaries. I love the idea of like 
telling real stories. To, to answer the question of what I'd like to see in documentaries, um, if they're kind, I think there there are so many out there. These documentary series that are really expanding um, the the definition of what uh, a documentary can be, what you can do with it, you know, how you can manipulate people's experience, like almost like a narrative structure, but applied to documentary using actual things. Um, there was the um, there was one about the contest they had at McDonald's for the Monopoly, you know, the little, you pull it off the French fry and the cups and stuff like that. And it was this whole racket. It was this whole scheme uh, to, to fleece them of all these millions of dollars. And it was just, it, it reveals itself over time. So I think there's already like filmmaking or narrative filmmaking techniques being applied to documentary already. And I'm continually surprised, but I, if, for me, I, I, if I had to say one thing, maybe more like people just being willing to not be so polished. I think there's a lot of polish and it just makes you wonder like, can I believe this? Because it's so, I like documentaries that have a little bit of a rough edge to them, you know, like somebody just literally picked up the camera, like more cinema verite. I do love when a documentary is documentary. I just feel like that approach is much more visceral for me because I feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm present. But yeah, um, I do like polished documentaries too. There's a great one called Crip Camp um, that takes place over, you know, many, many years, like 30, 40 years of, or longer. And it's about the, uh, the revolution and uh, the American Disabilities Act and who was responsible for it. Uh, and it's just very powerful, but it uses a lot of the conventions of, you know, music to convey a feeling like the rights that they had for the music in that is their budget must have been so high. <laughs> but that's, I've, I've, I just love when, yeah. So, but to answer your question about what right do you have to tell someone's story? If you have a good relationship with these people who own the restaurant, I think that can carry you very far. If you have a very tense relationship with your subject, you know, with the characters in your documentary, then that's, that always makes it harder. But if you have a, it's very convivial, very like they enjoy your presence, you know, or you're, it's kind of like the editor and the director that you want to have a nurturing relationship. You want, they want to spend time with each other. And that usually results in a more revealing um, final film. I think there's an approach like Michael Moore's approach to, you know, like bowling for Columbine, but not everybody in that movie was like pushing a camera in their face. There are people who wanted to talk to him, who felt comfortable talking to them, to Michael Moore. Um, but he would save these choice moments for confrontation because it was so crucial to the message. And that is not about gun violence, but really about the um, trying to make everyone live in a state of fear, constant fear. And so he used that film as just kind of like a meta commentary you know, when he goes after these big names and then they, they run, they run for the hills, you know? So he used it judiciously. He used it very sparingly. And I think that's, so if you want to get along with the people and you want to feel comfortable, you know, that's a conversation that you can have with them, I think. And I, I think if they're receptive, then that hopefully that puts you more at ease about the kind of questions you want to ask. So, um, but yeah, so that's, hopefully that answers your question and good luck with it. I look forward to see if it's going to be on YouTube. I want to see it. So, so please, um, you can reach out to us. We have a website. Info at spacestreamfilms.com is the email address. Or you can go to spacestreamfilms.com and you can find us on social media at Spacestream Productions. And you can find me, Spacestream. I mean, I'm not Spacestream, Spaceship. So, but yeah, 
um, I look forward to hearing from you guys if you have any questions or just want to reach out. Thanks so much for coming, guys. I guess we're out of time. Our, what, what the, what's, 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 how do we end this? How do we, how, should we go out singing? Thank you so much, Spaceship. You're, you're welcome. And uh, everybody, thank you for attending, for participating, and have a great evening. Thank you. And that's the end of Spacey's workshop. A big thank you to the Organization of Independent Filmmakers and to everyone who participated, and to you for listening to both parts. All right, bye! You've been listening to Filmmaking Actually with Coralinda, Space Dream Productions podcast. Subscribe to us on any or all the podcast platforms, but we especially recommend our sponsor, Anchor. If you like what you hear, leave us five-star ratings and positive reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps more listeners like you discover the show. But the best thing you can do if you really like the show is tell a friend. Want to leave a comment or ask a question? Email at filmmakingactually at gmail. Dot com. This is Spacey speaking, and remember, we have a podcast. We have a podcast. <laughs> she film. has a podcast. It's called Filmmaking Actually. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>